0: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Mark Marin's Grouchy Grief Edition It's Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023 On today's show, Mark Marin, podcast superstar and comedian Has filmed a classic HBO stand-up set We will discuss From Bleak to Dark And then we continue our Oscar march with EO, The Animal Rights Fable, is up for best foreign picture. And finally, cheap digs, cheap booze, a sofa, friends, and nothing but time. Whatever happened to hanging out? We discuss a concept and a new book with uh, Slate's own Dan Coyce. Joining me today is uh, Jamel Bowie, the opinion columnist, of course, for The New York Times and Slate alumnus. Jamel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So psyched to uh, have you back. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana.
1: Hey, hey, Steven.
0: Shall we uh, make a show? Let's plunge in. Let's do it. Let's do it. Mark Maron, he's probably probably best known for his pioneering and breakout podcast, WTF. But of course, before he ever started interviewing other comics uh, on their own dark recesses in his L.A. garage, he was, and he is, a stand-up comedian of note. He returns with the uh, always evergreen, the iconic HBO special. This one, I dare say, it is really special in this sense. It was filmed in the aftermath of the sudden death of his girlfriend, Lynn Shelton, the film director and TV director. Hence uh, its title, From Bleak to Dark. All right. In this clip, uh, Marin talks about uh, one way that people tried to comfort him when he was grieving his loss. Let's listen.
2: People want to help you. You want to be helped. You want to feel better. You want it to go away, but it doesn't because it happened. And you realize over time that it'll never go away, but people want to help and and you want to feel better. If you have smart friends, you'll get like six copies of the Joan Didion book. (laughs) It seems like there's a group of people that as soon as someone dies, man, the year of magical thinking goes out. And you read it because you want to feel better. And you're like, all right, so her husband died too. Didn't really help me. <laughs> but if you're a creative person, it has another level of despair because you're like, fuck, do I need to start writing now?
0: All right, Jamel, let me, let me start with you. There, uh, Marin himself acknowledges there was another way to go with this, which was to do a kind of different style, less sort of standard stand-up, comedically oriented, sort of one-man show with a maybe heavy, more heavy confessional element. He really didn't do that. He folded the grief portion of this, which is very, very poignant and funny in my estimation, into you know, a pr- pretty familiar stand-up format that uh, ranged over a bunch of different subjects. What'd you, what'd you make of this? So I-,
3: I thought the standard stand-up stuff was just fine, and I felt... And, and the grief stuff was so good and interesting that together it felt sort of like disjointed to me. I don't know, like the, the standard stand up jokes didn't really belong with the more like focused and personal um, and still funny, but like very different vibe with his material on his grief and the death of his partner. Um, th- that, that was like my thought during the, the entire hour that like, Two thirds of this is excellent. And a third of this is like, I don't know, man, just like save it for your
0: podcast. Mm. Dana, what about you? I know that you have, you've had a couple of encounters with Marin over the years. Would you, would you make of this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I approached this more as someone who's interested in the evolution of Mark Maron's career than someone who expected to laugh at a stand-up special. And as you can tell from that clip, I mean, there wasn't like a lot of of Rory's audience laughter in response to that storytelling about people sending him the Joan Didion book after his partner died. This is almost more of a one-man storytelling show, I think, than a stand-up comedy routine. Um, there's not many moments that you laugh unless it's the kind of you know, just the dark laughter of I can't believe he went there, which happens both in relation to talking about Lynn Shelton's death and talking about his father's dementia, which is the other personal avenue that he goes down in the course of the show. And you're right, Jamel, that it's kind of awkwardly sandwiched in between some much more standard stand-up material that is told while pacing the stage. You know, it's like when he sits down on his stool that you know it's going to get personal. of. Uh, but if you've kind of followed Maron's trajectory from, you know, the beginning of WTF, when I would say that his shtick, his main persona then really was that he was this very insecure comic, you know, a comic who was insecure about his ability to have the same success as most of the peers that he had on the show with him, which at the beginning were almost all comedy dudes, right? Um to him, really emerging as this force in podcasting, and also you know taking roles in in on TV and in film, and uh, you know becoming a somewhat beloved cultural figure, which is a little odd for what a crotchety figure he is. Uh, to see him finally getting this special almost feels like a vindication of of early WTF insecure Mark Marin, You know, moving into a space where he is more comfortable and at home, and a part of me just felt. Happy about that. I mean, as you say, Steve, I've also met him a couple times. Once because he came on our podcast way back at the beginning of you know his show being a phenomenon, uh, and and once because I was on his show, a guest in in the garage, the fabled Mark Marin Garage last year, about a year ago when my book came out, and. I have to say that seeing him in person and seeing him do his job in person that time, it hasn't made me more of a listener to his show. I only listen to the podcast when I'm really interested in the guest, basically. Uh, and once in a while, I skip past the, the um, you know, ramblings at the top, which tend to be somewhat repetitive and sometimes self-indulgent, but sometimes also really funny and revelatory. And after Lynn Shelton did die, which was early on in the pandemic years, I remember him doing a beautiful, beautiful top of his own podcast that was probably the the early progenitor of some of the material in this show. Anyway, I guess I just, I have, I am now one of those people who feels a general cultural benevolence toward Mark Maron. He's avoided, you know, pushing buttons to offend people and then turning that into his own shtick about how courageously offensive he is. There is something about him that I find appealing in that he has spent his life and his career going further inward and discovering Mm -hmm. who he is, and I think you see a lot of that in this special. So, even though it's a little bit more to me of a straight dramatic storytelling piece than stand-up, I do recommend it to anybody who has listened to his show and is interested in his evolution.
0: Yeah, I I agree with most of that wholeheartedly. But um, so, and picking up on that last point, you know, he occupies such a curious space, right? That he didn't become famous as a comedian, which refined his comedic persona, and then defined his persona as a host, he became unusually famous for a podcast host. Oh my God. I mean, it's just unthinkable to I be. mean,
3: probably,
0: probably the first
3: famous podcast host. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, who
0: wasn't already, you know, uh, very right. famous, right? Yeah. He leveraged it and he had a I mean, it was just a great gig. It was so unique to him. Uh, it wasn't exactly my cup of tea, but I knew, knew really to ad- seriously admire it in addition to obviously envy it. Um, but it was a format that was perfect to his personality, which raises this interesting point, which is that, you know, almost like Springsteen, there's this weird subset of... Springsteen's half a generation older but or more, but there's a subspecies of white men... Who are middle-aged or beyond? Who occupy a very traditional, masculine thing like Springsteen's attempt to be a like a working-class stand-in and like kind of masculine and hitting the weights and on and on and on, but keeping his politics like to the left of center, you know, openly so. And Marin is—he's an angry fifty-nine-year-old white guy, and I actually thought he hit that part out of the park, right? Where he was like, he didn't attempt to like parade his bona fides, right? And say, you know, license me to be up here and be the one speaking because, you know, I hold these opinions, which may not, it's not the wrong thing to do, but it it would have been the automated thing to do and would have been unfunny. He did an anti-anti-woke bit that I thought was really funny. I thought it was one of the highlights. I thought it was trenchant. It really connected that anger to um, something unexpected and somewhat eccentric.
2: Now there's all these comedians like, I'm an anti-woke comic, man. I'm anti-woke, and that's why I don't get work. Really? You think that's the reason? (laughs) Yeah, man, we can't say anything anymore. Like, me and all the other anti-woke comedians, we all want to say our version of the same three things,
0: and you just can't. That said, Jamal, to me, there's like a... The thing about Marin that I can't connect with while admiring him, like, really genuinely admiring him, is um, it's like he has all the anger, and he's got a lot of testosterone. There's, like, a lot of, like, male aggro in there. And he's directing it at all these things that, you know, are damaging, like can be damaging to like you know you men when you're young, like you know wildly inadequate parents or you know fill in the blank, like right, like I mean just the culture of success, the American culture of success, with like chews up and spits out, you know, so many of us. And uh, but it's like that testosterone is like it's such a strong dose to me. That's where. Um, what about you? Like which way does that rub you? Yeah, it's interesting because I I don't think of Marin as being a
3: particularly like testosterone driven comedian, and that's that's perhaps because he does he it's often directed at himself, right? It's like it's inward facing, um, to the extent that there is like a male agro energy, it's sort of like frustration with himself for like not living up to uh, a particular standard of success or, or male success, and when it is directed outward, it's often directed at Men who are doing a similar thing.
0: Ah, great! Yeah, exactly.
3: So it doesn't feel, you know, so often in uh, comedy, like male aggro energy is directed at sort of like social subordinates, like people who are like lower on the totem pole in one way or another. But here, it's it's either again at himself or it's like a lateral move at, at at people of similar. Uh, social power as him. So his whole the, we we kind of briefly mentioned it, but his um, at the beginning of the special, the little riff on anti woke comics is a great example of this, right? Sort of, it's it was a very a- very aggro riff, sort of being like you guys are bad comics, um, but it's not at like a typical target, uh, and I think that's like a very Marin thing to do. So it doesn't doesn't like rub me the wrong way as it can in some instances. Yeah.
1: I mean, as someone without testosterone, or I guess with low levels of it <laughs> suppressed by other hormones or something, <laughs> I, I have to say that what impresses me about him and his trajectory is, which I was trying to get at. And what I was saying earlier is that I think he has moved away from that, you yeah. know, in some ways that the part of him that was always, for example, comparing himself to other comics, you know, I mean, back in the days when Louis CK was on top of the world with his show, Louis, right. Before mm. his kind of, you know, me too fall. There would be this sort of friendly but sort of not rivalry between the two of them, you know, that he would talk about on his show or talk about with Louis C.K. when he was on his show. This is just one example that comes to mind because I didn't listen to his show that regularly. But I feel like his show has moved away from that and uh, and that he tries, for example, to have more people on who are not just male comics, who are his peers, who he has various resentful relationships with. He has on more women, etc. And as a woman who's been on his show, I was a little intimidated beforehand, not thinking that he would be mean or mm-hmm, anything like sure. that. But just sort of, you know, he's got that style. He's got a chip on his shoulder. Is he going to be challenging me? You know, I have this book about a male comedian that's important to male comedians, and I have to say that I was incredibly impressed with his preparation. He had mm-hmm. read the book. He engaged with the ideas in the book. He was curious about you know history and comedy, and you know he treated me not deferentially, but not at all in a, in a chip on the shoulder kind of way. Definitely as, you know, a person whose ideas he wanted to engage with. And, uh, and I was really, really impressed and surprised by that. So maybe that's part of why I just carry some affection toward Mark Maron. And even though this special did not have me on the floor, <laughs> nor was it so revelatory that I want to just, you know, send everyone I know to it. I do think that if you're open to seeing who Mark Maron is and seeing what he can do besides, you know, interview people on a podcast, you should give it a watch.
0: All right. Well, it's From Bleak to Dark. It's on uh, HBO. And, uh, you know, check it out. If you do, we'd love to hear what what you all think of it. All right, moving on.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
4: I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life & Art from FT Weekend. Hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life & Art is twice a week... On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FD journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find life and art from FD Weekend wherever you listen.
0: All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we discuss business. I'm sure we've got something. Dana, what's up?
1: Steve, we have only one thing just to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment, which will be a conversation with today's co-host, Jamel Bowie, about artificial intelligence and specifically about a New York Times piece that went very viral last week, documenting the very strange chat between tech reporter Kevin Roos and the new AI chatbot that's being developed by Bing from Microsoft. Uh, This chat went down some very strange alleys over the course of two hours and wound up with the computer declaring its passion for Kevin Roos and his desire for him to leave his wife and all kinds of psycho things that if you saw them in a movie would be accompanied by very ominous music. We will talk about how ominous it may be or not be that AI chatbots are our future with Jamel in the Slate Plus segment. Of course, if you belong to Slate Plus, you'll hear that at the end of this show without doing anything at all. And if if you're not a slate plus member you can easily sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus with your membership you get ad free podcasts you get bonus content like the extra segment i just described which exists on lots of other slate shows too and best of all you get unlimited access to slate.com you will never hit a paywall when you're a slate plus member this really helps keep slate going so we really appreciate you signing up if you can at slate.com slash culture plus once again that url is slate.com slash culture plus Okay, Steve. Le Show.
0: All right. Well, EO, just the letters EO, capitalized together, uh, sandwiched together, is the very best kind of superhero movie. It stars a donkey. Um, Not since Babe has a... In my estimation, I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but here's what I wrote down. Not since Babe has a uh, whimsical act of anthropomorphism made so much cinematic tenderness uh, out of a four-legged creature. EO is a circus donkey beloved and cared for by Magda, his young trainer and co-star in their act that they do together. But uh, due to circumstances beyond his donkey control, he ends up on this Odyssean journey through our world, the human world, which when seen through his eyes is a kind of giant, often open air, comprehensive abattoir, torturing and killing Earth's other creatures, non-human species with our appetites our indifference our greed the film is up for best foreign hence our discussion of it it is from the 84 year old polish film director Jerzy skolomowski co-written with his wife uh, we would love to have a clip to listen to but the movies in polish uh and donkey so dana let me pivot directly to you you've championed this movie right you love this film
1: I absolutely loved it. It was on my 10 best list. And I was really, really happy to see it come up for a a Best Foreign Film or whatever they call it, Foreign Language Film uh, Academy Award. And uh, I'm rooting for it there. And yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say about it, because it's a really hard movie to talk about, as you say, just as it's hard to find a clip to play from it. It's extremely experiential. I mean, one thing I would really strongly encourage if people are are interested in this film is to see it on the big screen, if you possibly can. I know I'm always waving my cheerleader pom poms for the big screen. But there's some experiences that are just best that way. And this is this movie is really um, immersive. I don't know what other word to use for it. it. It It submerges you in the consciousness of a non-human creature in a really effective and somehow mysterious way. I'm not quite sure how the camera work and sound work and editing work together to make you feel like you know what the donkey thinks, because he's not personified, right? I mean, this animal who's actually played by six different donkeys, but really, they do a really good job of giving him a kind of consistency of character, you know, doesn't have thought bubbles, or you know there's 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 no attempt to make him seem more human than any other animal being filmed, but there's something so expressive about the camera work and the way that he moves through space and the the way that we're introduced to his inner world that we almost seem to be sharing at times his his memories, you know his his memories of well, to to make us make it a spoiler, the, the one person in the film who really treats him well. And in a very different way than its most obvious inspiration, which is Oazard Balthazar, the 1966 film from the great French director Robert Bresson, which is also about the travails of a peripatetic donkey. Unlike that movie, this one is not an allegory. That's a very Christian movie, like almost all of, of Robert Bresson's movies are. And you know it's it's extremely well done. It's extremely effective. but you see what it's about. It's a moral message for humans in some ways. And I guess you could say that e o is too, and that it's a climate change film in many ways and an animal cruelty film in many ways. And it's talking about things in our world that are that are current issues and problems. But there's something timeless and, and fable-like about it that I just mm-hmm. found utterly spellbinding. And I'm wondering if it had that effect on you, both of you, too. I'm also curious if you did see it in a big screen format, just because I'm not sure that would come across on a TV screen in the same way.
3: I watched this at home on a pretty big TV, but a TV nonetheless. But I, I, I felt, uh, I think what helped was I turned, I was just me in the house, so I could turn up the volume really loud. On my sound system and I think that sound is so much of what makes this movie work sound is what immerses you uh, into it I gotta say, you know, before you go further into this kind of discussion, that th- this uh, this movie ruined my day. And this is—I <laughs> hope this doesn't spoil anything for people, but it, I feel like a movie about an animal journeying across a land is gonna it, it's gonna have sad things in it. Um, and this movie has sad things in it. And I, there are there are scenes in the movie that are kind of now er- er etched into my brain and will not go away. And they really bummed me out. <laughs> yeah.
4: I hear
1: you, Jamel. I hear you. I mean, I keep I keep recommending this to, to people in this sort of chipper tone. Like, EO, you've got to see it. It's mm-hmm. so great. And I think I'm not maybe adequately preparing them that, you know, it's harsh. And it takes the viewer to some really dark places and the donkey to some really dark places and makes you think about parts of the world that you would rather not think about. Uh and I know that when I saw it in a in a little press screening room at Criterion with just one more critic in the room, that the two of us, two, a person I didn't know at all, had never seen before, you know, we came out and talked about the movie for probably ten or fifteen minutes because yeah. we just needed to process it together. Did you feel laid low by it, Steve, as well?
0: Um. Yes and no. I <laughs> Steve <laughs> is like I don't feel. No, 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 no. I too I feel too deeply. The, the wound of life, uh, uh, Jamel, cut me deep, but. Um, I mean, I was inspired by it as a act of filmmaking in a way that perhaps compensated for the tragedy of its vision, maybe. Um, I thought – so a couple things. First, I love that this weird little hobby horse that Dana and I occasionally ride on this show is the Thomas Nagel essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat?, um, you know, in which Nagel gets at just the radical otherness of a consciousness as far from human consciousness as a bat consciousness. And it, it you know, that's sort of an extreme expression of the idea that you just cannot anthropomorphize these things. You know, you cannot give the animal kingdom a human interior without radically misapprehending their essence, its essence, right? Um, and it rode the line between that rigorous agnosticism and some tendency to ascribe human emotions to the donkey, though that may simply be the viewer's, you know, imposition on it. But but Dana, I think you said the word, the critical word here, which is it is a fable. Um, you know, the idea of a donkey journeying journeying as this one does as a kind of mute witness uh through the human landscape is inherently absurd if you take it with a degree of literality. And I thought among the brilliant things about the movie is you have to balance the fable-like element that allows that to happen uh, with a naturalistic, a semi-naturalistic, like he, this donkey is in the real world, our world, right? And that's what gives the movie, I think, its its power. Um, but Jamel, I have a very quick question, which is that there were two interesting moments that stood out to me. I just don't know what to make of them, honestly. Um, one is that among the things, really the initiating this spoils nothing but the initiating action of the movie that sends him out on his wanderings uh, is an animal rights uh, activism taken by implication too far which was sort of a interesting moment it was like well there's this other way to abuse our relationship to species that this form of kind of political it's it's depicted in the movie as a form of kind of political theater there's a sort of a kind of over-the-top demonstration with like tons of what we can take to be i think left-wing rage directed at the circus in which Eo has his relatively happy life at the beginning of the movie and um it's because the animals get quote-unquote set free that he you know has to has to embark on his journey and then the second moment is he comes across a wind farm and and it's depicted as the most sinister human invention, bird killing invention. And I thought this is a curious point to make at this particular moment. What uh, did these stick out in anyone else's mind, Jamil? The the first
3: stuck out to me that I, I that was the sense I got as well that the um, that the idea there is that this that it, you know however abusive the circus might be in general for EO in particular. It was a good life for him. Um, and the activists were, their, their performance is going too far. I didn't pick up on the windmill thing um, as much. Uh, I, I just, you know, maybe it just doesn't like register with me in those in those terms. But I, I don't know. I mean, the, the thing is, I don't know enough about, right, like, Polo's society or this filmmaker to like make any kind of definitive or um, they make any like real kind of judgments about the, the political vision here. Um, but there, there does seem to be in the movie, a kind of like, look how we have fallen perspective from the filmmaker, right? Like look, look, look at how um, look at what our society is. And because it's from the perspective of a donkey, and I, I want to emphasize uh, your point earlier that this isn't an anthropomorphized donkey in another way. That, that's what makes the movie, I think, challenging in a lot of ways. It's sort of like, it is just a donkey. Mm. Um, uh, it is not a donkey that is unusually intelligent. It's not a donkey that has human feelings. It is a, it is a, it is a, a, a beast of burden um, that has happens to have an emotional connection with this one person. But even that is sort of like fleeting. Um, but because anyway, because the film is from the perspective of this donkey, that that kind of political element, um, is somewhat submerged. And I, but I have a feeling that if I were just like more conversant in this filmmaker and in sort of the state of Polo society today, there's there is probably a an argument to make there.
1: I mean, I will say I I, I can't say that I know everything about skolabowski's career because he literally has been making movies for 60 years or something mm. like that. I think his first movie is from 1960, but for one thing, he's 84 years old and has never made a movie remotely like this. He is known for things like political thrillers. He has a movie about Solidarność about the, you know, the Polish Solidarity movement. Um, I think that he has historically and he's he did some early work with Andrzej Wajda who's sort of, you know, was one of the great mm. Polish filmmakers in the in the era of protest filmmaking. So I do think that he has aligned himself in the past with more leftist political causes, even though he might not be an explicitly political filmmaker. And there's, I feel like there's a lot of social commentary going on in this film, but some of it is a lot of it, in fact, takes place on a pretty existential plane yes. that seems like it 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 goes beyond critique of any particular, uh, you know, society or any particular uh, political framework, right? I mean, this is really a kind of rejection of hu- of humans. This is in some ways a movie about what if we could move toward a post-human future if only it was possible. You know, there's only mm-hmm. a couple humans per- portrayed in this film that you really think ought to be able to go on performing the damage that they're performing on EO and on the world. So it almost feels to me like it's a it's an animal rights manifesto, even if it does contain, as you say, Steve, a, a critique of animal rights as it currently exists.
0: Very quickly before we go, Skolomowski, another wreck from his uh, Irv. Dana, do you have anything?
1: I mean, I would probably say moonlighting, not the not the Bruce Willis, <laughs> Civil Shepherd TV series, but the movie with Jeremy Irons as a uh, as a Polish union leader. Mm. It's from 1982, and you know, right around the time that here in the West we were hearing a lot about the Solidarity movement in Poland, and uh, and I think is is a really accessible and, as I remember, a really really excellent um, reenactment of some some incidents from that time in Poland.
0: All right, fabulous. Well, the movie is EO. It's up for Best Foreign Film. Uh, I think basically we all really admired it. You should check it out. Um, It's getting much easier to track down now. It's just started streaming on the Criterion channel. Uh, All right, and let us know what you thought. All right, moving on.
5: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
4: If
2: we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again.
4: Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.
0: I've become an accidental witness to a growing crisis, Sheila Liming writes in her new book, Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time. She elucidates the crisis is people struggling to hang out or else voicing concern and anxiety about How to Hang Out. We're joined now by Dan Coyce, who's a writer, editor, podcaster, and of course, author of the new novel, Vintage Contemporaries. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to hang out with you guys. You didn't just write a review or an essay about Liming's book. You reported it. You actually went up to, is it Burlington, I think, and hung out with her and talked to her. And you wrote Sort of one of those great blended pieces that's first person reported and uh, a work of criticism. And one of the reasons you did that is not only are you abstractly interested in the subject, you too are afflicted by this struggle, right? And uh, so talk a little bit about that, about like what has happened to hanging out. It's presumably a larger phenomenon than we got locked down and isolated and mildly deranged or more by COVID, correct?
6: Yeah, well, I I found myself very um, moved and challenged by this book when I read it, and I wanted to do something different than just review it. As you note, I wanted to enact it. She issues a challenge in this book to people who once loved hanging out but find that they're not doing it anymore, find that they're not spending unstructured, unmotivated time together with friends, basically doing nothing. The challenge is, you know— do that more. Carve out time in your schedule, force yourself to unschedule, and force yourself to take the kinds of leaps it sometimes takes to hang out in middle age and later um, when you don't have the kinds of friend networks that you develop in high school or college. And I do think, um, I am convinced reading this, and, and based on what I see in my own life and in my kids' lives, that we are facing a kind of crisis of hanging out, a crisis of that very sweet sweet spot of social interaction that is not scheduled structured behavior um, that is not doing things on the internet. Both of those things have value. But I also think simply being together in person, occupying the same space and therefore coming to occupy the same brain space is incredibly important and moving to me in my relationships. And I find it much more difficult to do that because I'm busy because of the pandemic, because I have a connection to a mediating device, um, to a number of mediating mediating devices, which allow me to get some of the benefits of social interaction at a much lower barrier to entry. Um, and I see it in my kids who are teenagers and in the college students I teach too, that there's a real allergy to taking the steps that you have to take in order to Get comfortable enough with someone that you can just be with them as opposed to doing with them.
3: You know, I, I agree that people should hang out more. Uh, recently, so I, I have a neighbor up the street from me um, who recently got into building fires. Uh, and so, in his backyard, like that's not anything crazy. Um, and so, every so often, like about a couple times a month, like a bunch of us on the street or, you know, on the friends will go up to his place. He'll build a fire and we'll just kind of like shoot the shit for three hours, three or four hours at night. Um, and it's become something I really look forward to. <laughs> uh, and it's really enjoyable. Uh, and even if the conversations aren't particularly sort of like deep or far reaching, it's just sort of like a pleasant, pleasurable thing to do um, and good for my mental health. And how did you take the leap to get to, okay, this guy's building fires.
6: I now feel comfortable just going over what, when I smell smoke or when he texts me that a fire's
3: going? It was literally, he texted me. It's like, hey, you want to come over and build a fire? And I was like, sure, no problem.
6: Right. So that's the (laughs) step that I think people find very difficult uh, to send the text to risk rejection in that way um, or to accept the test to say, oh, you know what? I don't really know you that well. We're not capital F friends. We're not friends of the heart. But yet I think that there's something I would like to just spend some time around the circle with you shooting the shit.
1: Yeah, Dan, your piece came as a revelation to me when I read it last week. I both ordered Sheila Liming's book, which is on its way to my local bookstore now, and I immediately texted a couple of local friends with a link to the article and vague, you know, vague <laughs> suggestions for for future hangouts, none of which have yet come together because we live in New York and it's not just New York, I guess it's, you know, our age and the age that we live in, whatever. I'm sure that there will be multiple rounds of scheduling before any hangouts actually happen, but I think the thing that most struck me reading your conversation with Sheila and her husband is that I had just assumed that everyone else was hanging out, (laughs) (laughs) or at least that that generations younger than me—it hadn't occurred to me that there was sort of a a multi-cross-generational crisis in hanging out, maybe because my— 16, actually just turned 17-year-old daughter, hangs out all the time um, and seems to have lots of unstructured blobbing with her friends in which they, you know, go to Target together and it's not really, um, you know, they don't set up dates, you know, play dates like you do for a younger kid. They just sort of meet each other in the city and wander around doing errands and having fun together, which is very much how I remember my, well, probably not teens because I was in a more car-bound suburban culture, but certainly how I remember my early 20s and even early 30s. Uh, And I I just sort of assumed that people that weren't middle-aged and didn't have jobs and responsibilities and kids in the way that, you know, we do, the people on this panel do... We're just still doing that, and that that was just simply a natural part of of existence for those generations. So the idea that you know because of digital culture or the pandemic or you know I don't know what you want to pin it on you know uh, the, the rat race um, to succeed at all levels and all ages has has killed off that culture of hanging out. Seems like a, a real crisis to me. So I, I want to lead by example and be someone who does a lot more of nothing in the future.
6: And I mean, obviously, people tweeted at me when I published this piece. I hang out all the time. And I'm not saying that no one is hanging out. Your daughter is. I'm sure that there are kids at my kid's high school who are doing it. My kids even occasionally succeed in pulling that off. But the statistics definitely suggest that that kind of social interaction is weighed down. As an example, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does their time use survey um, alongside the census. And um, you know, about 20 years ago on an average day – about 38% of Americans socialized with friends, just pure socialization, not scared, Not hosting a party, not hanging out at work, just pure socialization with friends. And that number is down below 30% now. It's at 28%. Mm-hmm. 63% of Americans had five or more close friends in 1990, and roughly half that many do now. And so I do think... Based not only on the data but on what I see and what other people – parents I know and teachers I know see that I do think that that rat race that you mentioned, the increasing structuredness of teenagers' time and even college students' time has made it more difficult to find a way to do the kind of blobbing, as you say, that that seems so crucial.
0: Yeah. I mean, let me step in with some anecdotal, you know, semi-non-evidence. But, you know, I have a 17-year-old daughter. She's in her junior year, the audition year for college, massively overscheduled and stress. I mean, she's not a person who carries stress in her, you know, body or soul very easily. So she's fine. Um, but Absolutely, she voices this all the time, right? I mean, she's a kid who loves to hang out. She's always had friends and still does have a a posse. But the downtime has evaporated from her life. And there's a, you know, kind of meritocratic psychosis pushing it. um, And it's a kind of minor tragedy, especially returning to what should have been a normal life from COVID to go almost directly into that uh, is awful. Mm -hmm. The other thing is it's this funny discrepancy between a suburban lifestyle and a more urban or cosmopolitan one i spent you know the better part of 15 years living upstate new york in a sort of semi-rural still semi-rural but also semi-suburbanized community there was nothing but hanging out right it was incredible (laughs) it was it was like the principle it was jamel's Wonderful story about the neighbor who just said, like, come on over, let's make a bonfire or whatever. And, you know, it's like that is just that's endemic up there. And so it's funny because like sort of the soul of man under neoliberalism, right? There's part of that Calvinist conscience of I must be self-maximizing at all times that occasionally made that decision to live that way upstate and spend time that way feel like a kind of deficit or a falling behind so there was a way in which I experienced that tragedy sort of internally and I love your piece Dan because it showed me that what I had was this abundance which I kind of knew right like but it really was a a riches Uh, so thank you for that.
1: I actually have a question for Dan about that because in part as you started off by saying Steve this is a the experiential story of Dan hanging out with Sheila Liming the author of the this new book on the importance of hanging out and Obviously, that has different challenges to it, Dan, than calling up an old friend or a neighbor and saying, hey, let's come out and shoot the shit. You're talking to a total stranger, also in the somewhat artificial circumstance of reviewing her book. So that adds another wrinkle to it. But yet you seem to have had this really casual and cozy day with Sheila Liming and her husband. So I wanted to hear, I guess, tips from that experience about what you learned about how to hang out even in a situation with someone who you don't know that well and have never hung out with before. Why is she so good at it and how can we all get good at it?
6: I would be so curious if Sheila would describe the experience as cozy and chill or (laughs) if she felt stressed out the whole time. Maybe she did a little bit, but she – as you intimate, she has built – her. she and her husband um, up in Burlington have sort of built a life, it seemed to me, and I argued in the piece, that is made to be conducive to hanging out that includes lots of unstructured spaces of time, that includes a home that is warm and welcoming that they like to invite people to, that includes a living space that has uh, you know a couch that's perfect for three and fun art on the walls for people to comment on. So there's always a topic of conversation. They have rules about when people come over to their house, what should a guest be allowed to do first? A guest always gets to choose the first record to play on the record player. It seemed to me the more I dealt with both of them, that because this was important to them, they had consciously set out to make themselves as welcoming as possible to strangers like me, but also to the people who would eventually became their friends. And I think that part of that is that they're fairly new to Burlington. They moved there in the middle of the pandemic from North Dakota. Um, and so they moved at a challenging time to make friends, to meet new people, to hang out. And- It seems to me that one of the impetuses for writing this book for Sheila Liming was the crisis she felt when she moved to a new place and hanging out had evaporated from her life and she was desperate for it. And so they worked hard to make themselves people who are good at hanging out. And part of that is structural, the way you build your life, and part of it is openness, the willingness to be surprised by people, to allow them in, even if they're a rando
0: calling your publicist, asking to hang out for the day. But is that relaxing, right? Does that set a relaxing tone and atmosphere? Like, I'm going to hang out with the woman who wrote the book about hanging out. Like, you can be bad at hanging out in so many different ways. Like, did you feel like you were auditioning your hangout ability with them?
6: A little bit, but I had great faith in my ability to sit around (laughs) shooting the shit and doing nothing. It is a skill that I prize in myself. It's a thing that I miss. And so I sort of viewed it more as... Finally, it's Nadal versus Federer. <laughs> 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 oh,
0: awesome. Well, I was going
1: to say, Dan, that your novel "Vintage Contemporaries" is is all about hanging out. I mean, large parts of it take place in precisely the portion of the characters' lives when hanging out is at its maximum, and then it jumps forward into a future where they're looking back longingly to that time of hanging out. So, yeah, I feel like you've earned your stripes as a as a commentator on that phenomenon.
6: I certainly feel it. And and a great joy of the last couple of terrible years for me has been a sort of similar experience to Jamel, a neighbor who bought a big fire pit, started doing fires every Friday night, and you can just drop in whenever you want to. Um, and so that addition of hanging out with these people, some of whom are very close friends and some of whom are more casual friends, has been totally life-affirming and revelatory for me and has felt Made me feel in those circumstances the way I felt in my 20s when I was just surrounded by interesting people and we could, we talked about things that we loved uh, or simply just listened to the owls for a while and had a great time.
0: Uh, amazing. All right. Well, the piece is the case for hanging out. It's up on Slate now. It's by, of course, Dan Coyce, a very special guest of this program. Uh, Dan, thanks for coming back on. Thanks, y'all. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dane, what uh, what do you have?
1: Steve, I have a very classic me endorsement that I'm sure you'll be mocking shortly. But even even so, I will I will sally forth, and I think that after you mock you yourself will um will start to get addicted to this particular thing. This is a YouTube user named Nobody, which was already good from the beginning. I know nothing about Nobody except that Nobody loves Baroque music as I do, and has posted all these incredible playlists of music from the Baroque early modern kind of period, um, fully notated as youtube lists are often not so you can you know see not only what the piece is but the timestamp of when it's playing uh who the artist is who's playing it so you could easily track down all of this stuff uh, in album form if you wanted and uh And they all have really fun names. The one that I came across first, because I was really just Googling some music to write to, is Studying Like a Scholar in the Baroque Period. And uh, this is just a beautifully curated playlist that has a bunch of Bach and Handel and Purcell and music from that period and uh, has a beautiful painting illustrating it. And it's just, I really appreciate that, that nobody runs a tight ship on their YouTube channel. You know, like you can figure out what all the music is easily. Um, it's all beautifully chosen. It just has the feeling of a really well-curated playlist from somebody whose taste you really trust, and they all have fun names. So you, the YouTube channel Nobody has a lot of subscribers, almost half a million subscribers, and probably has mm, a dozen or so different playlists of, of great early music. Nobody on
0: YouTube. Dana, shame on you that you think I would somehow mock you for this most dana of uh, endorsements of all time in fact i'm going to do the opposite i'm going to point out that you gave this person their merch opportunity their t-shirt you know what it says what it says nobody loves baroque music like i do
1: (laughs) would buy fully especially if it had this this great painting of a baroque scholar that i'm looking at right now on on nobody's youtube page
0: love it uh jamel what do you have so for
3: reasons I, I'm not entirely sure of, I started watching two weeks ago, last week, um, the movie Perfect Blue, uh, directed by the late Satoshi Kon, uh, psychological thriller, kind of a groundbreaking um, work in the in anime and sort of Japanese animation, and I loved it. And so I thought, you know what, uh, Satoshi Khan he passed away quite young, unfortunately, and he doesn't have that. Deep of a filmography, so just let me watch all of his movies. And there are four: Perfect Blue, uh, Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, and Paprika. Um, and Pap- of the four, I think Paprika is probably the most known. And I love them. Um, and so that's what I'm recommending: just the films of Satoshi Kon. They are wonderful and humanistic. He had there's some comparisons people have made to Miyazaki, and they're very different kinds of movies. But the humanism is there, um, and the compassion. Uh, uh, but they're also mind-bendy in the best way. They're all, with the exception of Tokyo Godfathers, which is a much more very traditional kind of tale, they're all kind of structured around memory and perception and identity as kind of like the key things shaping the narrative. If I had to... Tell you my favorite of the four. It would be Millennium Actress, which is a, a wonderful, a truly wonderful movie about um, uh, uh, a retired actress, uh, an elderly, um, recounting her life. It is a, kind of a love letter to 20th century Japanese cinema, uh, uh, and also a love story itself, but kind of um, uh, a bit of an enigmatic love story. Uh, but it's um, it's a, it's a great film, and they're all really great and wonderful. Uh, but that's that's what I recommend you get. They're easy to... I just rented them on iTunes for like, you know, four bucks a pop. So it wasn't like hard to get a, get a hold of them. Um, and I really, I really enjoyed them.
1: Jamel, the only one of those I've seen is Paprika. I think I reviewed it. And it was so trippy and freaky that I've almost been scared to see other Satoshi Kon movies. <laughs> it's not scary. It's not that it's scary in a horror way. It's that it's, as you say, mind-bending... And had some images in it, some sort of dreamlike oniric images that I just haven't been able to get out of my mind. I will watch more Satoshi Kon, but I need somebody beside me <laughs>
3: to work you through <laughs> it with me. Right. I, I, if you've seen I, the, the other stuff is like much is like less trippy than paprika. Paprika really does take, I think, what is a core idea in the movies, which is like eliminating the separation between the dream dreams and reality, like thinking of them mm. as sort from of the same thing. Yeah, um, yeah. just manifested differently. Like that paprika takes that to its like logical endpoint, um but it's less it's less intense in the other movies and in millennium millennium actress in particular it's like not as
0: uh unsettling
1: i'll make that my next satoshi Cone then oh
0: my that is amazing all right um so you know i like i bring little offerings to julia turner right you know like like a cat bringing a dead bird well no no that's that's terrible metaphors <laughs> nothing like that they're they're very live and beautiful birds i i think i try to julia turner in the form of um jazz records she's not a i mean i'm not like, she's not a huge jazz fan not that i am but there's stuff i like uh and i think we like a lot of the same kind of thing you know music that can be in the background or the focus of one's attention piano-based, maybe, and uh, I found it. I found a new one that I love, new to me, that I love. Uh, the pianist Barry Harris, he was a bebop uh, pianist, uh, had a long, storied career in jazz, and he made, uh, very early on in his career, he made an album, I think in 1960 or 1961, for the Riverside label called Listen to Barry Harris, dot, 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 solo piano. It is exactly what it sounds like. It just a wonderful mix of up-tempo, mid-tempo ballads. It's moody, but also sprightly. But when it's sprightly or jaunty, it, you know, it it still has, you know, just a, a kind of, I don't know, a crispness and a focus. And, uh, uh, you know, and when it goes into unexpected harmonics and, and rhythms or whatever, it's never just for the sake of showing off. It's just a great integrated listen um and uh wonderfully melodic you can sit and focus on it you could put it on in the background it's listen to barry harris dot 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 solo piano julia i hope you're listening Mel, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's always it's uh, always special to have you back on. It's always a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. And Dana, it's always special to make a show with you week after week.
1: Yeah, it was so, so easy and fun this week. I loved all of our topics.
0: I know, it was. It was a really strong show. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Jamel Bowie, Dana Stevens, and uh, Dan Coyce. I'm Stephen McCatt. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.
4: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
0: So, first it was Dade County.
4: Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people.
0: And then it was Wichita, St. Paul,
3: Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all.